Stuart Lord, welcome to the New School. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Stuart, you are the fifth president of Naropa University and bring a remarkably interesting background to uh, this new assignment. You became the fifth president of Naropa on July 1, 2009. Let's just start by uh, asking, what is Naropa University? Well, Naropa University is a private, nonprofit, sectarian university. Um, provides an opportunity for education through contemplative education where students have an opportunity to be engaged with the body, speech, and mind. Mm -hmm. And what do you mean by contemplative education? Well, contemplative, edu contemplative education is the infusing of um, awareness practice, insight, and compassion for oneself and the other, honed through sitting practices or other contemplative practices where students are able to do the self-investigation, learn about themselves, and then develop qualities about who they are to be able to work in the world in a different way. Um, so that, that's what uh, the contemplative umbrella approach is the self-work in relationship to others. Now you just did, you do two silent meditations a year yourself, two silent retreats? Yeah, I do about uh, 10 days every six months. And you just came off of one of these retreats? I just came off of one out in Crestone. Uh -huh. And it was an exciting opportunity for me to, to settle down and work with my thoughts. And we all have those thoughts that we work with and not to allow those thoughts to be who we are. And so I, yeah, I managed to do that. It allows me to be a heart warrior in the world, to be able to, be, to lead from a notion of uh, a practice. What was the retreat like? I know every time I do a retreat, it's different. What was this one like for you? This one seemed to be like a lot of spaciousness, um, just revisiting with how much spaciousness there is in the world and how much I am connected to that enormous amount of, of awareness and spaciousness and, uh, and be able to work with that free of, of thinking and free of thoughts. And uh, so it's, it's, it's a gift to get up every morning and to, to meditate about eight hours and, and to be in that space and to wake up every morning and see the landscape and, and realize that I am connected the sense of connection to every piece, even to where you can't measure where I began and where something else exists. That's what I walked out of that. Wonderful. Sort of a sort of keen awareness and and sometimes fear because I'm asking myself, where did I begin? And where do I stop? And how do I how do I know that I'm me? And and then this reality of that I'm just I'm just occupying this human frame, that I'm more than just what you see. And the gift that I have even to occupy this frame, but to know that I'm bigger than the frame, I'm bigger than the body, the embodiment of that was, was part of my, my, my practice and awareness that I, that I came out of the retreat with. I understand you sleep only about four hours a night. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I should tell people that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I sleep about four hours a night. I've always been that way. Uh, 
that's sometimes only four hours in bed. So that means I'm not sleeping four hours a night, but I've managed to, to figure out how to sleep four. So when you're on a meditation retreat, oh, how, yeah. do you, uh, that's difficult. how do you deal with that? Are you, are you adding meditation time during the night? Well, you... it takes a while to, I mean, I, well, it's like when I'm sleeping or when I go to bed, because I think you have to go to bed around 10 or 11 o'clock, which is a miserable thought in itself. <laughs> and then to be able to lay there all night, eight hours in bed, that's like torture. So what do you do? So I, <laughs> I practice. I, I do laying down meditation for a while, and then I realize that's not working. So I get back on the cushion and I meditate some more. And then toward the, the last three days, I figured out a good balance to where I'm not going to bed until about 1 o'clock. And then I'm getting up earlier. So I, I figure it out. But the first couple of days is quite aware of the restlessness of my mind. So I have to learn how to tame the mind so I can get more, more sleep and, and, and make it work for me. You bring a really extraordinary background to your work. You're the first African-American president of Naropa. Um, and uh, your life story is, is such a compelling one. Um, uh, let's just start with your childhood. Where were you born? I was born in New Rochelle, New York, Westchester mm -hmm. County. Mm -hmm. And you went into foster care when you were very young. Uh, since two days old. Yeah. And you stayed with the same family for a long time? I was very fortunate to be with the same family. There were nine of us. Four were in foster care and five were biological. Raised by a single parent mom who treated me as if I was the gift and that treated me as one of her own ch children. And you have a twin brother. Twin brother, yes. We both grew up in the same foster home. And the notion of a community raising a child was very, you know, they're not just words for me because my biological, I mean, my foster father died when I was five. My foster mother died when I was in ninth grade. But the community, a sense of community and people looking after me uh, was, was very measurable. And even after your foster mother died, the family stayed together? Yes. Uh, my older sister, who just graduated from college, took guardianship and and when I went to college, I went with college with a hundred dollars in my pocket with a lot of good wishes and went to Texas. But she was uh, she was looking after me and and scraped the money for me to come home for the holidays and so yeah, so we, we stayed together and we're still a tight family. Now you were a very religiously based family, is that right? Yes. I grew up uh, the church happened to be well, I guess if I was to run to the church in my front door, probably about 200 yards, uh, where Shiloh Baptist Church in New Rochelle, New York, where I grew up. And what was the impact of that religious setting on your spiritual development, really? Well, I'm told that when I was five years old, they found me in the church preaching. Uh, I don't remember that, but you, know, you, never, you never know what stories are laden with wisdom and truth. But I grew up, the church had a very strong impact with me during elementary school and especially during the civil rights movement. I remember Martin Luther King dying or being assassinated and then being introduced to Gandhi and King's philosophy of social justice. And so I was in the choir. I was actively involved. I was a junior deacon. And I grew up and I went to, uh, to college to major in drama. 
and then accepted. That was in Texas? That was in Texas Christian University to major in drama. And it became quite clear that I had a religious calling way back then and, and then accepted that uh, the church had a, a powerful influence on me as community of faith, as a extended family. And the, the pastor of the church was, was one of my mentors. And, and, you know, as a young African-American male growing up, he looked at who was making the difference in the world. It was, it was through the African-American church, you know, through King and Jesse Jackson. And so those were the, the people who were out there in the trenches who, who were fighting for a view of America that, um, that included all of us. And I remember making a commitment when I was in third grade to uh, commit my life to end racism. And it was through the church and through the teachings and, and seeing the, the civil rights struggle at a young age that that's where I knew justice and, and, and freedom and, and peace, you know, from a biblical perspective. Uh, you know, there's uh, passages in the Bible that talks about we're neither Greek nor Jew nor Gentile and et cetera. So it's how my worldview was, was shaped a lot from the church. And after college in Texas, where did you go? Well, I went to seminary. Uh, I just knew that I was supposed to be a local pastor of a local church. I mean, what else? My grandmother knew that, too, and she's still waiting for me to do that. Uh, and your brother's a pastor. My brother's a pastor. So, I, you know, I, um, I went on to seminary, and then I got my second master's in seminary, and I started in college chaplaincy because I realized that the frontier of leaders for the world were college students. And if I worked with college students, then I can have a greater impact in preparing leaders, compassionate social justice leaders, leaders who uh, operated from a sense of compassion and openness and space. And so I started as a college chaplain and then realized as chaplain, I didn't have reach to the whole campus because as chaplain, you're sort of suspect. And I wanted the whole campus. I wanted, I, where was I, that? I wanted, this, is at, uh, this was at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana. So I wanted to have influence on the whole campus. So I quickly went into education administration and became associate dean. And then, you know, I, I could still be chaplain and then have access to, to students' lives and meet students where they were using the skillful means, not using theological terms for some students who couldn't handle that, but using social justice terms, reflection, and having students have that ha moment to wake up. And then and you so, got a telephone call that changed your direction a little bit. A telephone call that changed my direction. Well, let's put it this way. <laughs> Colin I get Powell, lots of calls. <laughs> Colin, Powell, Colin Powell's group got in touch. Oh, yeah. I, um, Wasn't a phone call? It, well, it was a phone call. And it's interesting. They, they use the phrase, we'd like for you to consult on a project. Mm -hmm. And now I really know what consulting means. It means we want you to think about a real job. Um, so I got a call from uh, Harris uh, Wofford. Um, former senator. Former senator from Philadelphia, mm -hmm. asking me, at that time they were thinking about putting together the Philadelphia Summit, which was to be the volunteer summit. And because of the work I had done at the, the Paul University, moving community service from 25% to 93%, and uh, having students serving the world as global citizens. So they asked me to look at the project. I came down, looked over for a day, gave them some advice. And then on the way back to the airport, they asked me to become the executive director of the program. We thought we were planning a, a summit for 2,000 people. We had 5,000 people 
in the summit in Philadelphia. Uh, General Colin Powell was the chairperson, worked with all the live presidents, and thinking about the five fundamental resources that young people needed to be successful in life. Which are? And those are having a caring adult. And if you think about who we are and what we, and, and yourself, if you think about, we've always had caring adults in our lives, whether they be a school teacher or a pastor or someone in the community, have a caring, or a parent or a coach. So having a caring adult and then having a healthy start, healthy start is health care, immunizations, that healthy start. And then having a quality education and, uh, and then having a safe place to grow and learn, so safe places after school and the opportunity to give back through service, what were the fundamental, five fundamental resources and did that through mentoring and wanted two uh, million mentors by... Uh, by the year 2000 was our goal, mm -hmm. and we've exceeded that goal. And, and then America's Promise Alliance for Youth is the project uh, that continues out of uh, um, Virginia right now. Mm -hmm. yeah. So after you were, and you kept your job at DePaul while you were doing this, commuting back and forth between D.C. and this executive directorship and teaching on weekends at DePaul, as I remember. Yeah, again, because of my, my gift of not being able to sleep, or not needing to sleep, I was able to, to uh, we, had, we had conference call classroom time. I taught on Sundays, one of my best classes. And I taught the class thinking that students, you know, I signed up for a Sunday class because the registrar's office said, you're scheduled to teach. So I figured students wouldn't show up for a Sunday class. So they walk in, 36 students the first day, and I said, the joke's on you. And we had a wonderful time. We had, I, I taught a leadership and ethics course. And so I would, I, would, I would leave Washington on Thursdays, have meetings with the staff on, on Fridays and Saturday with interns and teach on Sunday. And right after class, I had a flight to catch. And I'd make it to the airport it, probably two minutes before the flight would take off. And I remember getting there seven minutes one day ahead of time, and the, uh, the flight attendant said to me, uh, Mr. Lord, you're early today. <laughs> <laughs> you're early today. So I had it down pack to uh, down timing or how long it would take me to get there. And I think the, uh, the, 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 the community and the uh, state troopers were so excited that I was working in Washington, they just pushed me on through. They wouldn't stop me because I was going so fast. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. So how did you get from DePaul University to Dartmouth? Well, again, uh, in doing this work around service and uh, preparing students to be ethical leaders in a global community, there was an I had studied the Tucker Foundation when I was at the uh, Paw and learned about its mission to prepare students to. Uh, it, there, there's a saying that uh, William Jewett Tucker, who was the ninth president of Dartmouth College, says, "Do not expect that you will make a lasting impression in the world through intellectual attainment alone." without an equal amount of conscience and heart. So you think about that mission, my mission, its mission in the world with a pair of students to be ethical leaders, that, again, I got the phone call to ask me to consult about its future of the program. And then we began to talk, and there was an opening for the dean, and I um, put in my, uh, my application. And we began that long conversation, and it made a lot of sense for me to, 
to transition to an opportunity to, again, to have another uh, larger impact with a group of students to engage them in the world uh, through, through the Tucker Foundation. And what was that time at Dartmouth like? What, what did you do there? It was a wonderful time. Again, we moved, um, I was able to raise about $36 uh, million to support the programs for service and civic engagement and leadership and religious spiritual life. It was a wonderful time working with some of the brightest students, but helping them to connect with not just the intellectual part, but the heart, the deep inner work. And started a program with high school kids uh, called SEED, Summer Enrichment at Dartmouth, which still goes on. 85% of those students come from uh, five different major cities, and we rotate those cities, and 85% of those students are in college today and have graduated to trying to increase the number of young people who go to college. And then we started an international adopted a community in Nicaragua and been able to, uh, to do a lot of work there. So it, it, it was, it was uh, leaving Dartmouth was very hard to do because, uh, I mean, again, I've never been satisfied with, I, you know, I've always been told that who much is given, much is expected. And so I loved those years, and then there was time to, you know, I've been there 10 years, and I never want to want to lose that edge of making something happen. And so it made sense to, to make something happen somewhere else. Before we go on to Naropa, you did a lot of international work. Was that largely with Colin Powell, or was that in a variety of different contexts? Variety of different contexts. Each place I've gone to have tried to work with the institution to see the world as a global community and as students would graduate from university as global citizens. And I believe that education should be a passport to the world. And so through service opportunities, working in local communities uh, at DePaul with our, our service uh, board programs for service, and then we started similar programs and had programs and internships at um, at uh, Dartmouth. So it's just been the way that I think young people, when they walk across the stage, I have this uh, vision that they all walk across, that they become global citizens, and they've had real-life experiences with people in local communities and have touched the earth and the hearts of people who live in these communities, and that those stories become the student stories and they become our stories. So your, uh, the resume I've read of you uh, talked about uh, uh, leading service trips to developing nations, including Bangladesh, Nicaragua, the Philippines, and Sierra Leone. Were those, what, were, what were those about? Those were service opportunities. What we do is, is uh, set up a uh, relationship with the community that we'd go for about 10 years and keep going back with different groups of students this is at in January. Or, or we at did that at DePaul and also started okay. similar programs at Dartmouth been the way that I have tried to uh, help institutions become globally responsible. You also worked in the Mississippi Delta and in the Katrina areas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Again, with, Again we had, with, with students. We had students, uh, and, and similar, uh, even at Dartmouth, uh, I mean, even at Naropa, we had students who serve in the Gulf Coast. But our, our, my uh, last place, which was uh, Dartmouth, is students served in the Gulf Coast. We made a commitment for six years. But then that commitment changes based on the needs of the community, that we don't do community service for the sake of community service. You do community service because the community has needs, 
and that you use the resources of the institution to help the community become self-empowered to, so we become co-learners and we build a new community and as students learn the rhythm of the community and that we, we use our resources. And so we, so in Katrina, we started with, you know, Tim Militian and then moved on to working with families and then helping people move back into their homes and look at their, their uh, choices of employment and looked at the life cycle of, of disaster to sustainability. And that's some of the work that we did uh, in the Gulf Coast. Mm -hmm. So how did you move from Dartmouth to Naropa? <laughs> and I often said to people that Naropa is a place where I've been trying to get to my whole life. That, um, so in a lot of ways, I'm fortunate to be at Naropa because if I think of the things I've done, the experiences I've done, that I've been on this path or this journey to get to Naropa. And when I first met my first Naropa student five years ago, I saw that gleam in that person's eye. And this was before anybody contacted me. This is before anybody you. contacted me. I, I met this student at Karma Trolling in Vermont, and he was so excited about Karma Trolling being, Karma a, Trolling retreat being a retreat center. Yeah. And this student was so excited, he was transferring from his university and school in the Vermont area and going to go to uh, Naropa. And it was at homecoming, and I hadn't seen this student before. So um, I went over to talk to him, and I asked myself two questions during that conversation. I asked myself, how, how I, Stuart Law, would have been different, be different had I gone to Naropa and not Texas Christian University? And I imagine that as I found at TCU, professors who taught from the heart, who were open, who were grounded and, and, and spiritually, and professors who had this larger view for society, I, we had those, that there would be abundance of them at Naropa. And then I asked myself the second question, which now I, I no longer ask myself any more questions <laughs> because of that question. I asked myself, what would it be like to be the president of Naropa? This was five years this before. This is five I... years before I, I talked to anyone about Naropa. And I imagined that I'd be the champion helping to, um, I would no longer be on the sideline. I'd be a champion working with faculty and helping them gain the resources so they can do the work larger in the world. And uh, I'd be with like-minded people who understood the power of heart and soul and mind and the power of transformation. And so, I, so that was my vision. And then three years later, I, I got the phone call. And three days later? No, no, three years later. Three years yes, later. Three years later, there was a phone call, and I forgot I had that conversation in my mind because I told the consultant at the end I wasn't interested. <laughs> <laughs> so then a month later, I woke up and I realized, you know, you have to wake up sometime, uh, or you wake up all the time. It just didn't happen once. And so I, I woke up and realized, wow, this is that university and that student. So that, there began that, uh, you know, I went through the proper procedures of going through a search firm, and they contacted me, and, and the guy goes, you know, there's been several uh, nominations for you, and I said to him back, no, you're just telling me that. You know, I said, that's your marketing line to get me to be interested he said, no, no. So, you know, the short part of the story is that I'm at, I'm at Naropa. So we were 
coming back from lunch in the car, and I said to you from the back seat, I said, uh, Stuart, what are the three things that you're focused on at Naropa? What was that list? Well, that list, um, I think the first one I think I mentioned to you is access. I'm, I, the institution and, 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 and uh, what we're trying to do is trying to create greater access for young people to go to college. There are too many young people who think that college education or studying in a college is not accessible. So accessibility, and that's why getting the uh, $2 million grant from the Department of Education, which helps us think about accessibility, helps us uh, make ourselves more attainable through scholarships and so access. But not just access, access which leads to completion. Because so many students come in the door and they leave before they complete. So that's the first thing. I think access and completion is the first thing that, 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 that we're, we're very mindful of. And the second thing is, which I've said earlier today, is helping students have a real uh, world experience. I think an education should be, should be a passport to the world. And so when I think of global education, I'm thinking, talking about local communities, national communities, international communities. How do students have real-life experience? Because part of our mission is that students would have experiences. Experience leads to awareness, which also helps cultivate compassion. And that's right in the mission of Naropa University and what we try to do through our contemplative education. It's awareness, practice. It uh, has to do with um, compassion that's developed in relation with others. And so this global citizenship and, and that, you know, Boulder is a great place, but Boulder is not the world. It just isn't. And how do you uh, offer students opportunity to be in the world? And so global education, very important. And then the third thing I think I mentioned to you was how do we support the faculty uh, in helping them have the resources where they can do their work alive in the world and fresh in the world? And how do we sustain that through uh, supporting a faculty? How do we support uh, faculty who uh, join the Naropa family and become faculty members? How do we nurture their practice so they can be contemplative professors? And how do we undergird that? What's the pedagogy necessary to help a new faculty member uh, orientate themselves to the Naropa way of teaching, et cetera? So how do we strengthen our academic core through our faculty in result that the students have a much more integrated, mindful, contemplative uh, uh, way of being in the classroom? So access for low-income students, giving students a global education, and nourishing the faculty are the three core. Three things that are so core, vital, vital to what we are uh, busy at doing currently right now in our contemporary form at Naropa. I want to ask you more about Naropa, but before we do, because in the nature of these questions, we speak in generalities, but one of the things that has touched me in coming to know you, uh, which has been even strengthened by, by really studying what I could of your life, is that you have this wonderful combination of presence in a, in a way that's useful to leadership, but you also have this uh, 
for want of a better word, a deep uh, kind of personal humility that, at least for me, makes you enormously accessible uh, as a human being. And, um, and uh, a couple of things uh, really brought that home for me. But one, which is just so personal, is that um, you gave your twin brother one of your kidneys. Yes, that was about three years ago. I think three years uh, in November. And, you know, we have two kidneys. And I'm told we only really need one. So the other one was given to me to give away. And uh, so my brother needed a kidney. And I don't remember the conversation that we ever had that there was a decision. It was like I found out there was a need. And so... What do you do? You know, if, if you know, you often have to you have to live your values all the time, and you have many opportunities to do that. And when that time comes for you to live your values, comes knocking at your door. It's a marvelous way for you to be who you really are authentically in the world. And so the the act of giving a kidney to my brother, it's an act of love, an act of passion, but also an act of who I am. So much has been given to me that, you know, you have something to give to others. Well, I have to say for myself, I don't think I succeed in living my values as fully as you do. So if I came to you as a counselor or a friend <laughs> and said to you that one of my struggles, even at age 67, is I don't think I live my values fully, what would you tell me, what would you offer me to work on that? Well, I think I would first acknowledge to you, I'd probably say, I don't live my values fully. And so I start with, with that uh, confession, that all of us don't live our values fully, no matter who we are. But what's our intention? Mm -hmm. And do we have an intention to live our values? Mm -hmm. And do we have benchmarks in our lives? So I would be asking you, do you have benchmarks in your life mm -hmm. where you can point to that you are living your values fully? Mm -hmm. And if you point to those benchmarks, then that's just another opportunity for you to continue. Mm -hmm. And so it's, um, you know, it's a commitment and intention. As you become more fully aware of who you are and your capacity and your, your huge heart and capacity to be in the world, I mean, that recognition, you know, it's one, of the, one of the things about the founder of Naropa is this notion that we would learn about who we are, befriend ourselves. And as we learn about who we are and welcome every piece about ourselves and not be confused and not try to be different than try to be like this person, that person. And so living your values in a lot of ways has a lot to do with welcoming your unique self, welcoming all your gifts and all those things about you that you want anyone to know and not believing all of that. It's that space between what you know and what you believe. And that's why the, the meditation practice is so important. So I think, uh, you know, the intention of living your values, mm -hmm. you start there and you, you begin to do it. And whenever you, you see yourselves stumble or you see you get to a point where you're not living your values, and you look back and go, okay, you can do better. Mm -hmm. You can do better next time. And you do better next time. Mm -hmm. And you just don't, you just learn to have that conversation with yourself that 
I'm out in the world, I'm doing the best I can with the best I have, and you know what? That's where it starts. Mm -hmm. And the evaluation, the assessment of that is that small voice where you can just turn down the volume. Now, you brought up the founder of Naropa. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting uh, example of uh, an enormously gifted human being, yes. great spiritual teacher. I'd love to ask you to say more about him. Uh, but also a uh, very complex human being uh, in terms of his personal erotic life, in mm -hmm. terms of uh, his uh, substance use, so on and so forth. He was a complicated guy. Um, when you tell his story uh, to an audience that challenges you on mm -hmm. the fullness mm -hmm. of his complexity, mm -hmm. uh, what do you say? I think we're all complicated people. Mm -hmm. If we really do that self-investigation... By the way, what was the founder's name? Troy and Chaba Rinpoche. And what was his lineage or story? Uh, Shambhala. Shambhala lineage. Mm -hmm. We're all... Um, so he was a big spiritual deal. He was a, he was a, yeah. He, he was yeah. the one that helped introduce Dharma to the West. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about, at that time of the universe... Him coming from Tibet and studying in Oxford and then starting Shambhala Center and starting uh, the, the, the Shambhala, uh, which is Tale of the Tiger, was called then at Karma Choling, and then starting a Dharma Center in Boulder and then starting one in Halifax, all before he's, he's 45. And so he's a very complex person, but was able to reach people with the Dharma where they were using skillful means. And so when you think about what has happened since that time and the good that's happened in the world, one of the unique things that, that he was able to make sure we put into the Naropa mission was that we believe in the inherent goodness of all human beings. And that is in the mission statement, and that's the embodiment of what we try to do because of his work. And so when people want to focus on his, his, him being erotic or him being, he calls it crazy wisdom. Mm -hmm. Well, we're all crazy to some extent, mm -hmm. and some of us are just good at hiding it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think it's just a marvelous way of people being able to meet the Dharma where they were and not meet the Dharma where you can't find fault or you can't see there's a gap between the ideal, the vision, and the action. And so I think it's, uh, in our contemporary society, uh, we have a lot of people who, who are so far out of reach. But this, this guy was very reachable. There's a wonderful story that he met Allen Ginsberg when they were both trying to hail a cab in New York yes, together. Yes, yeah. And invited him to come out, and that's how the... He invited him to come out, and that's how the, uh, the, the you know, that's how the Nobel began. He invited uh, Allen Ginsberg and Ann Wallman, and they came out there for the first summer to have a summer writing program, a poetry program. They expected 300 people, and 3,000 people showed up. And there began the history of the summer engagement and the, the, the life and the disembodied poets. And so a lot of history of, of welcoming people and inviting them to be in their full being around the arts. The arts is so important uh, in writing, and writing, again, is part of emotion from the Tibetan understanding, and so working with emotion and the embodiment through 
you know, the psychology programs that, that, that came out of that, as well as the mind. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's, there's this wonderful story about how all those pieces came together, but there's, all of them lead toward that inner work of, of helping people to wake up, mm -hmm. to wake up. You know, I find Europa, let's talk about the university for a little while, um, in a way, I'm surprised that there aren't more places like Naropa in America and around the world. When I look at, for example, the Bachelor of Arts degrees, contemplative psychology, early childhood education, environmental studies, interdisciplinary studies, music, peace studies, religious studies, traditional Eastern arts, visual arts, writing and literature, um, uh, there, as well as a Bachelor of Fine Arts in performance. And then a whole bunch of other minors, including horticulture and gender and ecology and Sanskrit and Tibetan, just this rich, rich thing. And then at the, the graduate level, uh, extraordinary programs in uh, uh, just every possible area. The Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poets, uh, the Graduate School of Psychology, the... Uh, three-year residential psychology program, uh, uh, online two-year program, religious studies, theater. It's, it's very rich, and it is very um, culturally connected to a huge part of the American community. And um, I guess I'm just surprised that that the vision of Naropa hasn't more fully disseminated into the culture because it seems so profoundly congruent mm -hmm. with the hunger that so many young people and older people feel. You talked to me about a 91-year-old guy who showed up for the poetry program the other a year ago or whatever. So many people, young and old, feel for this kind of experiential learning and education. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Well, I think, you know, there's a, I think there's always a time, there's a fullness of time, I believe in. And if you look around the world and what's happening in the world and where people are spending their energy and time, that the founder's vision was that Naropa would uh, have a larger influence on higher education itself. It's this notion of where East meets West. And I think we're seeing the fruition of that. Uh, in the attitudes by where people are in the world, uh, where people are much more thinking about sustainability and being sustained in the world and work, working with the world, working with the earth and the elements of, of, of our fullness. And so uh, Naropa was started to have a much larger impact in the world and that's dream and vision. Uh, I think we are, we're doing everything we can to fulfill and make good on that promise. Mm -hmm. As president, uh, I was talking to your communications person, um, and I said, how, uh, how accessible does Dr. Lord, as your staff calls you, how, how accessible does Dr. Lord make himself? And she told me, you, any student can make an appointment to see you. You have open office hours. Anybody can make a 15-minute appointment. Uh, you have what is it, tease or something once a month, you really go out of your way to connect. I think it's very important. I think about my own 
nurture in higher education and how uh, when I connected with the president or I think connection is so important. I think life connection has been about how do we connect the dots and how do we connect the people. And so I make myself available. We, we've, I've had probably all the faculty at my house for faculty dialogues, the core faculty, at least three times within 18 months. We do a Thanksgiving dinner for students who can't go home. We have about 40 students at the house. My wife and I cook for that. Uh, we have students over for dinner. We have receptions or coffee with the president. I have open office hours. And uh, because as the institutional representative or president, I am there because the people are there. My job is to listen well, to think about what their needs are, and to turn their dreams into actuality, to become the dream maker. And if I'm not listening well, then I don't think I can lead well. And so it's a, a great opportunity affords myself to listen well, to be with the people. I mean, I love people. Uh, so, you know, if it was up to me, we'd have much more interaction, but I'm on the road half of the time. So I want to make sure that I'm fully present when I'm there, engaged with the life and heart of the institution. It doesn't matter where you work in the institution, what level you work at, or if you're an alum or a student or a friend of the institution, my job is to be there available, to listen, and to help the institution be the institution that the founder, the, the trustees, and the people who, who, who pay, uh, pay tuition have the greatest learning experience possible. And I can't do that without being connected. Hmm. You have a four-year-old daughter? Yes, I have a four-year-old daughter. How does she feel about your traveling all the time? <laughs> Chloe, she says, Daddy, you're all gone all the time. <laughs> uh, so she, she's not happy with that right now, because I think I was gone three weeks in a row. And that was hard on her. So I told her this last trip I'd be gone seven days, and I had to count to seven. And then I left. I go, how many days is Daddy gone? She goes, seven days. I said, okay, I'll be back in seven days. So I try to reach out and call her. But, she, you know, we, we, we have, I take her to school when, when I'm there and try to be fully present with her and remind her of some of the, the teachings that Naropa is about, you know, try to ground her into this view that she's creative, wonderful, dynamic, special, loving, and she has a big heart. And so, um, you know, she, she, she is part of uh, lots of people's inspiration at the college, and, and so we're really fortunate to have her in our life and to share her with the college. How did you meet your wife? I met my wife when I was a student at Princeton University. She worked at the Wawa, and I worked at the other Wawa. We worked at two different Wawas. <laughs> And, um, I'm sorry, I don't know what the Wawa, Wawa is. Wawa is a deli like 7-Eleven. Oh, okay. And her friend said, you should meet this guy. And my friend said, you should meet this woman. And I got a little scared and I went to meet her knowing she wasn't there that day. But, I, but, but that I would leave word that I was there. And she called me on it. She called me and go, I heard you came by on my day off looking for me. So, are you scared? <laughs> but I had known her brother. Uh, through the health fitness at Princeton University. And so we met each other, we became friends, we dated for about 10 years, mm -hmm. and, uh, and we got married. Yeah. Is she involved with Naropa? Yeah, she's involved with Naropa. Uh, she's also a fashion uh, illustrator, and mm -hmm. she works uh, locally in the next town mm -hmm. at Maurice's and has a busy life. And, but she's in, she, you know, uh, she's in, uh, we, have, we have trustees and events at the house, and so she says she has two jobs, and, mm -hmm. and I guess I have to believe it. So I'm very interested to ask you about 
how you've brought together your Christian uh, spiritual life with your Buddhist practice. Let me ask, start with the Buddhist practice. You talked about the retreats. Do you have a daily practice? Yes, I have a daily practice. What's so that I, like? My daily practice, um, I practice 45 minutes in the morning. The morning starts for me around 5 or 6 a.m., so I have to be, yeah. And then I have an uh, afternoon practice at 3.30, so 45 minutes in the morning. And then at 3.30, I invite members of the, the Naropa community, if they would like to meet me in the, in the uh, meditation hall, and we practice from 3 to 3.30. And then depending on when I go to bed, I have a 45-minute practice before I go to bed, so it could be either 1, 2 o'clock. Last night, I think it was 3 a.m., uh, and then I had to get up again, and I started my... So I got to bed at 3 a.m., and my next practice was at 5 o'clock. So I managed to get uh, three practices in a day. But so I also... Total of, total of how much time in general? Well, two 45-minute and mm -hmm. a half an hour. So I guess, what's that, almost two hours? Or, two or hours Two and a half, and something like that. I, you know, I, wow. You yeah. said to me, and I picked right up on it, you said we were actually having lunch. <laughs> And we both ordered the veggie burgers at the mm -hmm. Coast Cafe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you asked how long I'd been a vegetarian. Yeah, I said, yeah, yeah. probably 25 years. And mm -hmm. you said you just started. Yeah. And uh, um, then you said something wonderful about what you went from to become a vegetarian. Yes, yeah. And you said to me, uh, you just said it sort of offhand. You yeah, said, be careful what I say you to said, you, I'm a disciplined person. And I said, I get that, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> I think of myself as somewhat disciplined, but man, you're just like the, you have a black belt in discipline when it comes to discipline. I'm not in your class. I'm not in your league. But, but tell the story about uh, what kind of diet you were eating before you became a vegetarian. So um, I remember before I was a vegetarian, I used to order breakfast, mm -hmm. and I love bacon. I don't think I've ever ordered bacon in a restaurant where I haven't gotten double or triple bacon. And I think three slices of bacon is like a teaser. So mm -hmm. why would you just start with three? And you have to have more than three. Mm -hmm. And so I went from double bacon to uh, triple bacon to no bacon. Mm -hmm. uh, and that comes out of my practice. It comes out of my commitment to cause no harm. And uh, sometimes the student has to be ready for the lesson. And out of my datun, I did a 40-day meditation retreat in silence at Karma Trolling. And coming out of that experience, I came out with a greater awakening of being, uh, causing no harm. And, one of, and so the act of being a vegetarian is my practice to cause no harm. It is that memory of that decision, which is a benchmark for the other decisions I make during the day or make part of my life. So there's like that discipline of being a vegetarian, which leads to the mindfulness of how do I want to be and show up in the world. So how do you bring that Christ-centered part of yourself together with contemplative practice? Well, you know, if we really think about deep religious understanding, there's a lots of contemplative understanding in, in religious or in Christianity. I think um, a lot of that has been... Uh, underground or, or, or no longer up, but, but it's growing in a lot of ways. So I consider myself a, uh, a Christian contemplative, and when I want to get really bold, I say I'm a Christian Buddhist, uh, because I've been able to uh, integrate my uh, awakening, the search for union with the divine, and 
you know, in, in the Buddhist understanding that the, 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 the Buddha is, is, is embodied within all of us. And how do we call it forth and how do we live it and how do, and how do we become, we, we are it. We don't have to become it. The enlightenment is, happens all the time. And so in the Christianity, you know, there's, there, there's theology that says, you know, we're, that we are the embodiment of Christ. And I consider myself a spiritual person and I th- have figured out how to, how to live an authentic life being awake and available as a transformed uh, human being to do good in the world and for the benefit of all. And I've been able to, to, to sit and practice and, 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 practice and, and be able to be on the cushion, but not to stay on the cushion. I'm on the cushion for the purpose of doing something in the world. And I can take my Christian philosophy, my understanding of Christ, and be centered in being a Christian Buddhist in a way that I can live closer to Gandhi's principles where Gandhi says that you have to be the change you want in the world. And I learned that when I was uh, in third grade. And it was about seven years ago, when I, uh, well, eight years now, that I started practicing the Dharma because I realized that I was giving more than I was receiving. I didn't like the quality of what I was giving. I knew that was not who I had to be in, in the world. And I knew I was expected to give more. In what way did you not like the quality of what you were giving? That it, that it wasn't grounded in my heart. Or that my heart was always... That my intentions and, and, and why I was doing it... And, I, and you, know, you look back and you go, did I really say that? And you know, I have great influence in people's lives and realize that, you know what, I'm going to have great impact on the world. I'm gonna have, I have lots of opportunity to help people. But how do I not mismanage that moment, or mismanage that conversation, or mismanage that, that, that journey with that person? And I begin to realize that, you know, that this whole notion of using skillful means, working with compassion, awareness, and instinct and all those things, they weren't in line, they were not in alignment. And so I realized that that was wrong. That voice, that inner voice said to me, you're not being who you are meant to be in the world, fully. And so a friend of mine said there was a, a Dharma center in Vermont, and I went, called them up and said, you know, I, I just want to do an in-house retreat. Didn't know anything about much about the Dharma, even though I had a professor who was a Buddhist who I studied under when I was in uh, seminary. So it wasn't foreign to me, but, you know, I wasn't ready for it. Were you in seminary in Princeton? Was that yeah, Princeton Theological oh, yeah. Seminary. Uh, yeah. So I, um, I remember calling, and then I, um, I came to Common Trolling, and I remember driving the car and getting out of the car and realizing that I got out of the car and I started walking. And something said, slow down. And notice. And that moment was that voice or that moment was that I've slowed down and noticed ever since. I kept coming back and studying and, and then began to see that I was being in the world, the change, that I had to be it and work at that all the time. And so I've been able to put the two together and, and living a, a, a wonderful 
life of, an, uh, of, of being grounded and not allowing my thoughts to be the last word. What was the spiritual impact on you of becoming the president of Naropa? The universe, the choir sang and said, welcome home. Mm. That um, the Sakyong, doing the inauguration, referred to or, or gave me a, um, a huge opportunity to just tell people that I'm, I am to be the heart warrior, that I am a heart warrior. What does that mean to you? Meaning that, um, that I lead from the heart. I lead from the heart, that I make decisions for the benefit of all. And um, so, you know, coming to Naropa was, um, you know, a dance. I'm still dancing. I'm still mm -hmm. celebrating that fact. Mm -hmm. uh, try, tr trying to do the best I can as a human being with skillful means, with his commitment to do no harm, but also trying to help the institution move into a place to make decisions mm -hmm. to where it can be and have the greatest influence on higher education. I'm going to ask you a, a tough question, which is, uh, we... we you have it already? We're... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're uh, we're in uh, the middle of uh, 2010, uh, uh, February, end of January, beginning of February 2010, and there's this incredible revolution sweeping through the Islamic world right now. Um, and uh, we all know about the um, extraordinarily, extraordinary environmental challenges we face. We know the gap between rich and poor is growing in so many places that um, great corporations, you know, big corporations own a larger and larger proportion of the global gross national, international product. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of challenges and I wonder whether you have a sense of what, is there a future of the earth that young people, many of whom are very disillusioned or very skeptical or cynical, they can't find jobs, and you know, there's just so much going on that's causing a lot of young people to really question uh, what the future holds for them and for the earth and for their children. What do you say to them, and what do you think about what the future holds for young people? Well, I think I, I, I get excited when I think about the future of young people because they are wrestling with the questions. They're wrestling with the big questions about the meaning of life and sustainability of the earth and the ecosystem and our relationship to the ecosystem and our relationship to the economy and to government. And so I think those questions lead toward there's that inner voice that brings those questions to the table. And that we as a human race are having to deal with those questions on a massive global means. And I think there is this innate wisdom of us 
as you know, the, 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 we believe in the inherent goodness of all people from the Buddhist perspective, and this whole notion of uh, you know bodhicitta, then and and goodwill, that we're going to have to come up with new paradigms how we exist in the world. And there has to be that that uh, that moment of gestation, that moment of collective understanding that we can no longer live the way we're living and that we are the solution. And I think it starts with the question, people are making alternative decisions and, and those um, students who are graduating from colleges with a whole different view of what it means to live a life in relation with, with some, you know, with, with community, with the earth, with the elements and and so I think we're, you know, we're, we're at a moment of a rebirthing of who we are and connected to all things. And um, so I have a lot of hope for, for, for our future because we, we have that innate wisdom. We have the intelligence. And you match that intelligence with uh, our innate capacities to do, to do what we know we have to do that we're, people are more awake than they ever have been. So let's open it up. Uh, thoughts, comments, questions? Stephen. Yeah, um, can you tell us a little bit about um, how you approach social justice issues at Naropa and racism? You mean how students do it or how I do it or? Well, um, how do you get at those issues through the curriculum and in, in, uh, in what you offer students? Mm -hmm. So I, I think I've seen, and I've also, uh, I'm teaching a course right now uh, on a service learning class. And I teach racism through experience. I don't really spend a lot of time talking about race at first. I try to create experiences where students are in culturally diverse communities to where they may be the minority. You have a majority student who is a minority in a community and then use that as a moment of the, the aha. When Denny Lee showed up and went to an all African American church and he was from Alabama but to read his journal of what that meant for him and the fear. And then to use it as a window to talk about, you know, here's he going to a church, place of God and all. So, you know, it's not, not like he's going to, you know, whatever, but he's going to a church. And then to use that as a moment for him in, in teaching to, you know, to introduce other authors. Also to have him look at fear and look at what his family dynamic was and how he grew up and where those lessons came from. and have, It's almost in a way of deconstructing, de deconstructing the person's, because when, when a person comes in the counter with that, when, when Denny Lee has that experience, he has to go home and realize that him being a racist has a lot to do with the way he was brought up in his family. And then he begins to struggle with, am I a racist? Or how to use my power, and then the other question that I see students come with, my father's a racist. And how do you go home for Thanksgiving having had that 
two months of that before Thanksgiving, you go home and you're sitting at the Thanksgiving table with, with, with your father. So, I, so, so that work is very important experientially, and that's why the international work is more important for me experientially, because it is that frontier to break down in a subtle way and to, and, and to rebuild how we are connected. Uh, and, and so that's how, I deal, that's how I deal with race. On social justice issues, um, I think we deal with it at Naropa in ways that um, students can get excited about a social justice issue but get burned out and it's not sustained. And so we begin to ask the question is, why are you doing this? You know, wh where does this notion around justice come from and how is it grounded? And how is it grounded to where there's this notion of you adding confusion to the problem or you being a solution to the problem? And so helping students do the inner work and the self-investigation, pair themselves to be able to sustain social justice work. Because how do you, how do you work with when you are marginalized and when no one else agrees with you and you're the voice crying in the wilderness, where, what grounds you in that work? So when the world decides you are you know, the problem or you're the person non grata because you're standing and you're saying this, where do you, how have you built support for yourself? And so in social justice work, I've tried to work with students in helping them build that frame. What is their paradigm that sustains them to do the work so, that, so they don't get tired or confused or you know, show up on the weekend to protest and Monday reality shows up and they're back to studying and et cetera and remind people that social justice is a long-term commitment laden with sacrifice and laden with uh, a view and a vision that's much larger and what do you see even though no one else can see it. And that's been the kind of work, uh, how I've been able to work with students and, and sustain social justice issues. And so through our environmental studies program, you know, students are working with that, environmental justice. Some of the faculty there on the front lines, you know, uh, uh, you know maybe at a protest and have an experience and, and, and help students understand the politics of protests. And like when the students protest this summer at Dartmouth, I mean at, at Naropa, you know, I welcomed it because there was something inside of them that said no, no. And that call to know and that call to respond is to relook at or to articulate the why. And we don't have to agree, but, but if there's something inside you that says no, this is not fair, this is not right, then how, how do you pay attention to that and welcome that? So I've been involved in a lot of protests throughout my, my years of of higher education, and even in high school, et cetera. So I welcome that. So when students, you know, trustees ask me, if students take over the administration building because you've done something or the university, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to get my sleeping bag and sleep out there with them because that's how you listen. You know, you got to be right there in, in the middle of the protest. You know, so you, you, you just, there may be sides, but how do you, how do you take, take the, uh, the opportunity to listen and to learn? Dr. Stuart Lord, fifth president of Naropa University, thank you for being with us at the new school. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.